interesting story behind that song. Pete Townshend, who was the guitar player there, a principal guitar player for The Who, and wrote a ton of songs that you would recognize, wrote that song, Who Are You?, while the band, ironically, Who, was having an identity crisis. You picking up on the irony of that? Who? That's a way homer then, okay? So what happened was Pete had a very long meeting with the record company, uh, at the conclusion of which he walked away in New York City with a very large check. And so he went to one of his favorite watering holes in Soho, and he celebrated. And he ran into some members of another band who are there, whose name I will not mention because it starts with sex and ends with pistols. And um, when he was talking to them, he realized how edgy they were compared to who the whom the who had become. Be a direct object, right? How does that work? And so he just began to just feel, as he was pouring stuff down his gullet, he began to just feel like they had sold out. They had sold out that the band, the Who, that was ready to be radical and, you know, that 70s band that was, they just lost their message for the sake of a paycheck. And so he wrote this song, Who Are You? The whole song's about, about him. He woke up in a doorway in Soho and a cop told him to either get a, go home or go to jail. It's all, who are you? They lost their sense of identity. I wonder if that's a picture of the American church. Who are you? Are you the church? Are you still the body of Christ? Are you still the bride of Christ? Or are you still the house of the Holy Spirit? Or has your identity been stolen, church? Maybe some of you have been victims of identity theft. I think that would be a horrible thing. And I would figure that the only way you could get your identity back and restored would be to give convincing evidence that you're that person. If I tried to tell people that I'm John Travolta... Or Bruce Willis, we're the same age. I'm also the same age as Denzel Washington, but that might be a harder sell. I'm taller. If I tried to make that claim, somebody would say, you're going to have to prove that. Nothing like a thumbprint, right? Scientists tell us, and I don't know how they know this, that we each have a unique print. How would they even know that? I don't remember ever being printed. Okay. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way, right? <laughs> but somehow I could, I could identify myself by comparing my thumbprint to some thumbprint that was also on file. 
Well, if the church has any hope, really, of restoring its own identity, I think we have to do that. I think we have to compare the church to the thumbprint that's on file. And you're going to find that in your Bible in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Now, if you've been with me, some of you have been with me for the whole 26 years, and to my recollection, this is the 19th series that I've brought from this passage, Chester. So, and you say, well, why do you keep preaching it? Because I'm going to keep preaching it till you start doing it. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, I should say till we start doing it. This is, this, this is really the seminal text for what the church is meant to be. This is the church's thumbprint what it's supposed to look like. And this is the infant church. The Lord Jesus had given his life for us on the cross. He'd risen from the dead, conquered death, ascended to the Father. And now Holy Spirit had come and poured himself out on the church, and some pretty incredible stuff was happening. And so here's the church that was born from that. <clears throat> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and be the teacher. My thoughts, I surrender to you. My lips, I surrender to you. And ask you, God, to make sense of this for us in this present day. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the foundational text for this fellowship right here. I want nothing more and nothing less than the fulfillment of this text for our church. This morning, as the staff... We were praying together, and uh, I just was moved to pray, God, in my lifetime, I would like, I just want to see this fellowship so substantially resemble this text. You know that if somebody out there who isn't maybe a part of the vineyard, they read this text, they would think, oh, well, that's the vineyard. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> but it's the fingerprint of the true church. And if a church calls itself a church, it has to resemble this, because a group calling itself a church isn't, for that reason alone, a church, correct? Any more than a person calling themselves a Christian is a Christian just for saying it, without evidence in their life that they're following Jesus. And so this passage comes to us, and and I've isolated seven different qualities of the, of the thumbprint of the church, what the church is supposed to look like. And so Christian and I are now feeling led of the Spirit that over these seven weeks, we're going to try to bring one quality at a time and then invite God to come and clean off our thumbs. Is that all right? Yeah. I hope so, because that's what we're going to do. <laughs> so the first quality... I want you to see, it's down in verse 47, and it's two words, praising God. 
praising God, that the first century church was a worshiping church. And if you read the whole context of thing, they were a joyously worshiping church. I mean, it was on when they worshiped God. And a church has to be a place of worship. And I don't mean a place of ritual. I mean a place of worship, where men and women and young people like us have an opportunity to come in and a table of the Lord is somehow set before us so that we can worship God, so that we can empty the contents of our heart of adoration or desperation to God. This is worship. And so the first, the per, the first century church is the perfect church. This is the baby picture of the church. And it's what we're driving for to the one who said, unless you change and become like little children, you shall never enter the kingdom of God. So I'm going to give you a brief primer on the subject of worship around four questions. I'm going to go pretty fast because I want to leave a lot of time at the end today so that we can guess what? You may go. Four questions. Listen fast. Number one, what is worship? I love the way Francis Chan says that worship simply means to bow down. Just to bow down. That's what worship is. It's to bow down. It's to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. It's to bow down. And bow down not just in a moment like this, but worship is something that we do with our whole lives. It's not just a giant song on Sunday morning, but it's a life that we live and we bow down with our lives. We bow down. We live all 168 hours in the week bowed before the Lord. Last week, Christian asked such a couple of great questions in that truly excellent message. And he asked two questions. He said, does God have your time? Does God have your time? See, there's, there's two ways to approach your faith in this present busy world. One is to say, I got 168 hours and 40 or 50 I'm working. I got these kids and I got to catch some sleep and blah, blah, blah. Where can I fit God into that mess? Bless you. The other way is to say, wait a second. I have 168 hours to bow down before God. How can I fit my job and my kids and everything else about my life into that and it's to begin there with a bowed heart, a surrendered week, a surrendered time. The other question Christian asked was, does God have your decisions? That was a good one. When you make, you make decisions all the time. When you make a decision, do you, do you counsel with the Lord? Lord, what's, what's your thought on this? This is what I'm thinking. Is it a good decision? That's a bowed life. I'm going to make a big decision. I'm going to make a small decision. I'm going to make a defining decision. I'm going to make what seems like a minor decision. But we just bow before you and say, all the decisions are yours. There's no decision that's too small. The Bible says in Philippians, it says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Everything. Everything. Is God in control of your decisions? And if you look at those two questions, 
I would say that only a person who can answer yes to both of those questions should call themselves a worshiper. Because we can be singers on Sunday, and clappers, and jumpers. But what about the rest of the week? Because the gathered worship experience is meant to be a group expression of the life we've lived all week. Did you get that? What are we doing here this morning? We're rushing into the Lord's house to celebrate the life he's blessed us to live bowed down to him all week. And so we become the point of a spear here together. And something really cool happens when we do that. But it has to be as a result of a life, a week that's been lived bowed down before him because that's all worship is. Does that make sense? I want you to even notice in our text here how low down the praising God reference is. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. That's living the life. Everyone was filled with awe because God was doing a bunch of stuff. That's living a life. They were all together and had everything in common. They took care of each other, selling their possessions. That's living the life. They continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. That's living the life. And then it says, praising God. Because then they're ready to praise God. They're ready to worship God when their lives were bowed before him. Does that make sense? Okay. So worship is bowing down. Why do we worship? Well, first of all, because it's what we're created for. Anybody read Genesis yet? It's the first book. I should see some hands here. Did anybody read Genesis yet? All right. So God created us. Here we are. What do you make us for? He made us to worship him. Why? Is God some insecure, cosmic egomaniac that needs people like us to come and sing a bunch of your wonderful songs? No. We are made to create, we are created to reflect the perfection of God. We don't add anything to God when we worship him. What we do is reflect his per- perfection. That's what worship is. And if you read the Bible thing, you'll discover that everything was created to reflect the glory of God everything. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaimeth the work of his hands. Everything. That includes us. We were created in the beginning to worship God, to reflect his glory. How do you do that? You bow down and you reflect his glory. A few of us, like Mike, we have a distinct advantage when we bow down to reflect the glory of God. We have We have a shiny, reflective surface that God has blessed us with. Some of you poor guys like Carlos there are stuck with all that hair. Ricardo, you keep walking with God and maybe you'll lose your hair like me, okay? (laughs) But we reflect the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's what you're created for. That's what you're saved for. You say, why did God save me? 1 Peter 2, chapter 9 says that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Catch this. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's why he saved us. So we can bow and we can reflect. Let's worship. Why do we worship? Because in it we find the present reality of eternal life. Anybody saved? Anybody in this room saved? 
I mean, I mean, give a shout if you're saved. Go ahead. Okay, that's good. I, just, I, want to, I want to make sure somebody in here knew what I was talking about. Okay. Well, if you've come to the place of knowing Christ as your Savior and your Lord, your eternal life has already begun. Becoming saved isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card that you play later. It's knowing him now. Jesus said, if anyone hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life, has, present, and will not be condemned. So on that day, we will not be condemned. And he said, he has crossed over from death to life. How do we enter into that life? No better way than worship. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. When you worship God, you enter into this space, this eternal life space. I was worshiping God here last night, and I, I, I was having such a great time. I just felt like I was in heaven. just had my guitar strapped around, just walking around the building and just praising God, worshiping God. I, when I was done, like an hour later, my shirt was drenched with eternal life. That's the enter in, man. And also, we worship because worship gets the weeds out. Yeah, worship gets the weeds out. So Jesus told this parable in Mark 4, and he said, this farmer goes out to sow, and he throws seed on four kinds of soil, hard soil, rocky soil, weedy soil, and good soil. And so, you know, it's pretty obvious. He explains it a little bit later, you know. But what he says about the weeds is that that soil didn't grow well because when it grew up, it was choked out by, he said, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Boy, that's so easy, isn't it? Beloved, is that easy? Just to, our whole lives just become the cares of this world and deceitfulness of wealth. How's my 401k doing? And how much percentage am I going to be able to draw on that at the time? And come on, these are real questions. But if left, left to ourselves, they become weeds. <laughs> I was praying in my living room Friday morning, just two days ago, and I was having my time with the Lord, and the sun was coming up through the windows, and it was so awesome, and God led me to that parable, and I just prayed, God, would you clear the weeds out of my heart? Would you, would you do some more weeding? Because if you look at my life, you might not immediately see the weeds because you're not going to find me drunk at a bar anymore. You're not going to find me with another woman ever. Clear that one up. You're not going to find me trying to score some weed You're not. I'm just saying, you're going to look and you're not going to see like these giant weeds. But you know what you can't see is my heart. The distractions of this world, of balancing a church budget and trying to find more staff. And I, I just crying out to God, Lord, I, I just want to get reconnected with you. Could, you. could you just weed my heart? It was such an incredible time. I got up and I was walking around my farm, and we had recently just planted some pasture, and uh, it wasn't—it was just beginning to sprout in this pasture that we just planted. And 
remember I'm praying, God, would you remove the weeds of my heart? And I look out of that pasture and I notice and something, something in the middle, about half the size of this room. And I walked out there and it was thistles. It was weeds in the heart of the pasture. Not on the edge, in the heart of the pasture. And I'm, I just prayed, God, would you remove the weeds of my heart? Yesterday at the men's breakfast, the speaker who was at, oh yeah, my son. <laughs> he just did such a beautiful job and he, he referenced the parable of the sower yesterday morning. And I'm saying, yes, Lord. How do you get those weeds out? Nothing quite like worshiping God. Because when you worship God and you focus on his excellence and his majesty and his mystery, then all that stuff, the 401k doesn't matter anymore. The worst thing that could happen to me today is that I drop dead and go to heaven. I'm kind of open for your sake that I make it through the message, but I won't be disappointed. How do we worship? Well, first, worship according to your own way. All these people in here, and you're each unique in so many ways. Let's talk about it. Because maybe sometimes you get, some of you get discouraged. Like you see some of us sort of blah, blah, kind of going crazy. And you're like, I, I, don't, I just don't feel that. It's okay. Because there are two kinds of worshipers in this room in that respect. There are emotive worshipers and cerebral worshipers. Some of you are like me. You feel right? You feel it. You feel stuff. You feel life. Some of you are like Christian. You think. Yeah, that's why we're both here. Okay? He's a very thoughtful, intelligent person. Thinks through. Okay? Now, in reality, we can live in each other's worlds and do all the time. But I just want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about, would you describe yourself as a more emotional person or a more thoughtful, cerebral person in that regard. Because it affects how you worship. So if you're a more cerebral person, what's going to happen is there's going to be something that is part of, the, part of the worship experience that it's just a stunning thought. And it just gets in your head like, whoa! Now you don't feel it all giddy like Tom Anderson does down there. You, know? you don't get all jiggy with Jesus you know, about it. But you're just sort of stunned. Like, Whoa! Whoa! What? And you, that's worship. And if your hands don't go in the air, your feet don't stomp, you're still worshiping where you're going, whoa! But you gotta let yourself do that. There's traditional versus contemporary worship, right? Some like the book, you know, turn to 367, ladies on the second verse. That's traditional, right? And then there's contemporary, which I, I think we would be described as contemporary worship. There's expressive worship versus contemplative worship. Some of us are just naturally very expressive. We stand out in front of the church with a megaphone and yell at people when they come in. Uh, you know, we're just naturally expressive. Some people are, are, some of you are just more contemplative. You're more thoughtful. It's, it's sort of this thing going on inside. 
There's liturgical worship and informal worship. Liturgical meaning some of you come from backgrounds where there was a real set kind of pattern to the worship. And you know what? As long as a person is finding life and truly worshiping God in that setting, praise God. We don't judge that. But it's not our way. We're informal, right? I heard one of the best compliments from Bill Christensen, who's the executive pastor at Vineyard Columbus. He said, you know what? He said, whenever I run into somebody from the Grove City Vineyard, they always say something like, yeah, we never know what's going to happen on Sundays. <laughs> what a compliment, right? What kind of worshiper are you? Because whatever kind, everybody has a part to play. You have an important part to play. Once you find your tribe, is this your tribe? Is this, are these people the kind of people you want to ride the heaven bus with, you want to worship God with? Are these the kind of people you want to go shoulder to shoulder with in feeding the poor and praying for the sick and declaring the gospel to the world? Are these, is this your tribe? And once you decide that, and that's up to you, once you decide that, then you're stuck with us. You're here. Some days you'll be happy about that. Some days you may not be happy about that, but it's your tribe. And it is yours to bring your part to the worship because you have a part to bring, cerebral, emotional, whatever, so that when you're not here, the whole body suffers because you didn't bring your part. You see, I don't want you all to come every Sunday because I get paid by the person. I want you to come because you each have a part to bring to the worship. Everyone has a gift to bring. Yeah, something, something to bring. And also, each of you has a message. When you, according to the message of your own heart, there's so many different ways that we can we can worship God. You know, we can like declare. Uh, things about God, the attributes of God, the faithfulness of God. We can, we can call out in desperation. We can ask God to be present. That These are the kinds of things that we can do to really worship. But it's, where's your heart? Where is your heart? Stop looking at the person next to you and deciding whether or not you're a good worshiper. Decide you're a good worshiper this way. How did you answer the two questions? And then secondly... Which one of those messages are you bringing? And maybe you have a different one. What's your way? Worship God. Let me give you quickly some common obstacles to worship. The first one is failure to repent of and confess known sin in our lives. How many of you had a perfect week this week, sin-wise? Good. I was going to lose my job for a minute. Of course not. We all have sin in our lives. It may not look like it used to look, but we still, we still have that heart. Paul even said it. He said, I don't get it. It's like there's two people living inside of me. So the question isn't you can't worship if you have sin in your life. The question is, you know, the, the issue is you're not going to worship if you are accommodating sin in your life and not dealing with it anymore. And say, ah, that's just the way I go. Yeah, that's the way I roll. It's my secret pornographic addiction. Yeah, I'm not hurting anybody. You're going to choke your worship. 
doesn't matter. I'm not hurting anybody by doing this, by doing that, by saying this, by saying that. That's just the way I am. I, I just hope, I don't know how God, long God's going to let me live, but I just hope I never, ever stop getting up in the morning and saying, God, would you fix something else about me today? But just accommodating sin in our lives and saying, yeah, yeah, I know, but we'll cut off your worship. Pride. Pride will cut off your worship. It, pride is really a sense of superiority. It's like, nah, I don't need to do that. I'm good. You guys go ahead. I'm good. It's usually guys. We're taught from our daddy's knee to take pride in what we do. Come on, buck up, stay like a man. Come on. And we get this pride thing going to... Maybe we're feeling something for the Lord, but it's like, ah, I'm not doing that thing. Pride. Pride. If pride, listen, if pride is keeping you from worshiping in here, then I promise you the same pride is keeping you from following Jesus out there. They are not disconnected. A sense of inferiority. Some people just say, well, I'm not... I'm not worthy to go into the presence of God like these people are. Guess what? You don't get to decide that. Jesus Christ gave his life, died on the cross for you, and counts you worthy by his blood. Now, if you're saying, I'm not deserving, absolutely none of us are, that's different. But you cannot say you're not worthy when God says, I set your value. Some people have an overly cerebral approach. They go, you know, I'm just such a thinker. I'm just going to stand here and lean against the chair in front of me till this singing gets over with. Because I came for the word. I came for the teaching. Hey, I'll totally give it to you that, you pref that, that that's a part of you that comes alive. But you're not totally cerebral. You have feelings. You need to release them. You need to allow yourself to get stunned by the thought. The very thought of God is stunning in and of itself. And I just need to tell you also, you're never going to understand all of it. Your postmodern, post-Christian, post-Toasty's mind is never <laughs> going to understand all of it. I think an overly emotional approach can be as damaging as an overly cerebral approach. Some people just they get so into the sort of the fun of it that they forget to consider the power of it, consider the nature of it. Some people treat the Sunday morning worship experience like they're at a Pink Floyd concert or Imagine Dragons or something. It's like, yeah, this is just so cool. Everything but the weed is here, man. And they, they get kind of caught up in the fun of it and think they're worshiping. When I'm feeling it, I'm like, I'm, I'm just saying, God, where do you want to take me with these feelings? How can I get closer to the fire with these feelings? Where does this go next? Okay. Number six, I think it's inconsistency that keeps people from worshiping well. Just so, it's just so hit and miss. It's like you kind of come when you feel like it, and it's like, ah, it takes you so long. How many of you ever worked out before, right? 
Yeah. So when I have a goal, I can work out like crazy. So when I was running, Brian and I were running the marathon, it was like, I can work out like crazy. This time last year, I joined two of my sons in riding my bicycle. We started with our back tire in Lake Erie and ended with our front tire in the Ohio River in Cincinnati. And we rode that ride. And here's the deal. I have been on my bike twice since then. <laughs> That's called inconsistency. I can promise you that if I got on my bike this afternoon, it would not be pretty. <laughs> Worship. There's going to be in and out, on and off, starting all over again. The first century church was characterized by worship. That's, that's this line on the thumbprint of the church right here. Let's worship. Let's worship right now. Let's take the rest of our time to worship. Now listen, if you're one of those people who likes to leave at the beginning of the last song, I want to ask you to stay. I don't disrespect you for kind of being that way. You, you roll the way you roll, but I'm just going to ask you today, Stay. Give yourself a chance to worship. Give yourself a chance. If you've just discovered, well, that makes sense. I'm more cerebral. Give yourself a chance to be stunned by the thought of, of God. If you're more emotional and never given yourself freedom to just let go and worship, then give yourself a chance to experience the emotion of the Lord's presence. And I asked Amy to shorten the service or praise part in the front so that we could have time now. So please don't rush off. But give yourself a chance. Church, let's stand. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you right now into our midst. And we welcome you, Lord, into our midst and ask that you'll come now and you'll meet us at the places of our hearts, Lord, where each one is different as people can be in some ways. And and yet you call us your sons and you call us your daughters through the work of Jesus on the cross. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Deepen the well of worship at the vineyard, Lord. Deepen the well of worship, Lord. Come and be present among us. Stun us with your presence.